Ladies and gentlemen, hello. I'm Francine Stock. I'm del delighted to be here for this uh, Q&A for I, Daniel Blake. Um, I know how I felt after I'd seen the film, which was I felt that I needed some time. Um, but we are very, very lucky, even as we recover from it, to have here such a fantastic selection of the filmmakers. So will you please welcome to the stage Hayley Squires and Dave John, producer Rebecca O'Brien, writer Paul Laverty, and director Ken Loach. Well, first of all, congratulations to all of you for the amazing film. I'm going to start, actually, Paul and Kem, with, with the two of you, because I know that the way you work, there are so many stories that you consider, and, and with your particular way of working, you know, you, you talk things over and, and develop them. But you, you might think that benefits and the whole question of benefits would be too big a challenge to depict in a film. So what, what made you convinced that you could do it? Um, well, it's a good question, Francine, because that's exactly what I thought. And um, <laughs> I remember the relief of getting the first phone call from Ken after we handed in, <laughs> handed in the first version of the script. But um, you're right, because it's, um, it's, it's, it's not monolithic. You know, it's incredibly complex, and it's very, very difficult to get your head around it, because there's so much legislation for people who are disabled, single, people who are looking after carers, etc., etc. But, but the more we dug into it, what we began to hear was just how people were treated, especially you know, with the assessments and also with job seekers. Because in reality, we could have told you know, many, many stories. Disabled people, for example, suffered six times more from the cuts than anyone else. And um, so it was a matter of understanding the legislation, then listening to people's lived experience, because it's abstract and you read it and it, it all looks fine. But it's the lived experience of people that really begins to seep in. For example, you think, well, you make a phone call, but if you're on a phone call that lasts three hours and you use up all your credit, and then the, you're just how you're, you're run down with that. And then what was very, very interesting to us, of course, was the, were, were the whistleblowers inside the Department of Work and Pensions. And they gave us nuggets. They risked their jobs. We couldn't name them. But they told us what it was like from the inside and how they were bullied by management. And what was very, very interesting was starting at the north of the country and just working your way down, talking to advisors, people in food banks, and bit by bit, you build up a picture. And then the critical thing, really, was to find a simple premise, two main characters to try and tell the story. So we talked a great deal about where to place this, because Daniel Blake is a man who's an organized life, he's not particularly vulnerable, he's articulate and he's smart, but he was, he was ground down. Mm. And, and why Newcastle? Um, well, uh, as Paul said, it, it could be, um, we started the research in, in the Midlands. Uh, we went um, uh, back and forth across the country and, and say the same story was everywhere. But uh, we, we wanted a, a culture that, um, that was kind of rich culturally, that we felt a sense of resistance in the, in the, um, in the, in the dialect, in the, in the, in the, the culture of the city. And, um, and a, a city with um, built on the old industries, which which the northeast is, with shipbuilding and mines, which had gone. A city where the obviously there was desperate poverty, but there was also rich, uh, quite a wealthy city centre. So it's side by side with with the poverty, um, and the people make you smile, you know. And we and we felt we felt there had to be a kind of cheerfulness and and a, and a, a kind of humour 
about it um, and about the characters. So uh, Newcastle was, was good. But we hadn't worked there before, um, not actually in the city. And it, if anyone's looking for location, it's a great place. <laughs> and um, Hayley and David, in terms of your preparation, I mean, did you, did you go, you went and met people or, I mean, <coughs> what, what kind of preparation did you have? Well, I, I um, the first day, I mean, I've been very lucky. I'm a stand-up comedian, so I've, I haven't had to get, you know, have any sort of unemployment benefits. So it was a big shock to me. And the first thing Ken did to me the week before when we did preparation was he made me fill in the 52-page uh, form. <laughs> Dear God. I mean, you know, yeah. and I came back to him and I said, I can't do this. I really can't do this. And then it made, it struck to me that if you're sick, and you're disabled and you've got to fill this form in because um, on the chance that if you fill it in wrong or you don't get the right points, you lose your benefit before you're, you're, you're well enough to go back to work. That hit home to me, you know, it was a big shock to me, that sort of, um, um, because when I, you know, it was the 70s when I last, I was unemployed and it was a labour exchange, you know, and, you know, they would if the job came in, they'd send a little guy on it motorbike with a telegram to say, you know, somewhere to go for a job. So, you no, know, you know, and the whole thing. So to me, it was a big shock and I never knew anything about sanctions at all. I didn't realize that, you know, if you're, you know, late, um, you can lose money and, and, you know, things. So it was a shock to me, you know? Yeah, big shock, yeah. Um, I signed on once when I left drama school because my mum said, you know, I've paid in, you go and get you know, get what you deserve, and I, I did it, and then I, I, never, I did it once and never went back again. Um, I just found it too, um, my temperament didn't cope very well with the way they spoke to me, to be honest. Um, but, but in terms of research, it was kind of twofold for me, for Katie. Um, the first half of it was very much focused on um, meeting women who were in very similar situations to Katie pre-taking the flat in Newcastle. So what um, myself and Ken and Paul really spoke about was it, the importance of knowing why Katie <coughs> made the decision. And to do that and to invest in that with her moving to Newcastle with her children, we had to know what she was coming from. So I worked with um, Shelter, the homeless charity. I say charity, they also do amazing legal work um, when it comes to advice and also um, fighting the calls for people. Um, and so I met with two brilliant women who were, who were really kind and let me into their, into their homes. One was in a flat after having lived in a homeless hostel for 18 <coughs> months uh, with, her, with her daughter and while she was pregnant and then after giving birth. Um, and she had then got a flat in Deptford, so I meant to, went to meet with her. Um, and then with another woman who was living in a, in a homeless hostel. And by homeless hostel, I mean um, if you take probably the, the biggest bedroom on average that you have in your house maybe, at a push. They were living in there with their children and eating and sleeping and trying to get them to sleep and do their homework and clean them and so on. Um, so that was the first part of the preparation. So we knew why she had made this decision and why she had to go. Um, and then the second part of it came later on while we were shooting, which was going to the food bank that's um, featured in the film. That's a real food bank in Newcastle. The people that you see who helped me on that day were the women who worked there. Um, and I met, went and met with them and the people who used the food bank and very delicately tried to speak to them about their lives without being too intrusive because it was quite fragile. Um, so they were the two 
sort of prep and Paul and I work sorry Paul and I work quite closely on a, on a biography for Katie as well didn't we Paul gave me a brilliant document to say these are the decisions I think she made and how she made them and why and they were really that was really informative and really helpful because that food bank scene is absolutely extraordinary and um, I mean what kind of negotiations do you, if you're going to film somewhere like that Rebecca I mean how, how easy is it to do that well I think it's simply about trust and I think um, during the research, um, certainly uh, Ken and, and the location manager, first of all, would have met up with, I mean, I think, in fact, Paul first went and visited a food bank in Glasgow and, and did quite a bit of research through them. Um, but again, it was a question of, of let, getting people to understand that we were taking their work seriously. We weren't just voyeurs and we wanted to show it as, as, as it is. And um, the vicar who, ran, who runs the food bank that we, that we used is the biggest one in Britain. And um, it's, it, it feeds, regularly feeds about, I think, 400 people. And it's um, the, the ridiculous thing. I mean, it's run by the Trussell Trust. The, the, there's a van that goes from Newcastle down to the south coast every week and picks up all the food that, and then comes all the way back up. I mean, it's such a bizarre concept, these things. I mean, you, what you learn when you're researching, but they trusted us and, and allowed us to use the space um, and set it up in the way that they did. And, and it's just them opening the doors to us, really. Um, can I just say, um, Rebecca's right, talks about trust, but there was a big obstacle, and that's the television programmes Written on the Dole, or Life on the Dole, or Benefit, Benefit Street. Street yeah. they, they, every food bank we went to were initially suspicious because <clears throat> they thought you're here to take the mickey. Yeah. You're here to make fun of the people who come. And, and we had, that was, and, and I think we share that feeling as well. That actually, the, it, it's, it's fascist TV to me. It's lining people up to be set mm. forward, to put down as, as as people less than ourselves. And <laughs> so, so we, 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 we had to overcome that. And, and it, it, it was, people were so resentful and so hurt by those, by those programs. I don't know if the makers realize the personal humiliation that they put people through. And um, shame on the people who commissioned them, actually, as well. Can I just add something to that too? Because this was something very, very important before we even started on this project, you know, digging around, doing the research. But one thing that absolutely fascinated us was that they had, we looked at some YouGov polls and then they found that on average, people thought that up to 27%, depending on the poll, sometimes up to 35%, thought that 27% of the welfare budget was fraudulently claimed. The reality is, is 0.7%. So there was such a massive gap between you know, reality and this distorted version. And I think it connects up with all of that, that television. And I think also suited the government too, because they made a political decision um, after the banking crisis to target a sector of the community. And it was a political decision. And there was a great line from a civil servant who came across, talked about low-lying fruit. In other words, easy targets. And of course, when you're backed by that fascist type of television, these stories and this distorted reality 
it makes it you know, a vote winner to say, right, we're going to go after welfare. And, um, and just to give it in context too, you know, we saw the sanctions there you know, with, with Katie Morgan. The year before we filmed, sanctions were running roughly about a million a year. They've come down just now, but it's 500,000 times that misery. And it threw people's lives into absolute chaos. And I don't know how many stories I heard of people, because again, the stereotype was, well, these people are sanctioned because they deserve it. I mean, I spoke to people who, their partner had gone into labor, they'd phoned three times, they still turned up and found out their benefits were cut and they came out and their, their lives were thrown into chaos. I spoke to another whistleblower and he spoke, he told me about a story in Birmingham where someone was one minute late sanctioned. I mean, you're sanctioned, it means you're thrown into hunger, your life is chaos, and it's not only you and your partner, but if you've got children as well. We talked to people in, in food banks who were feeding their children biscuits. Mm. It just throws their lives into absolute chaos, and the pain and misery and stress caused by it is absolutely beyond the imagination. I'm going to open it up to um, questions now here. If there's a hand up straight away there. Anyway, go ahead then. This predominantly for Ken Loach, but it must also be for Paul and Rebecca. Um, when you're gone, and I hope it's a long, long way off. <laughs> I think that's directed at you, by the way. Which, <laughs> I hope. Which, which filmmaker is going to be the chronicler of social injustice? Oh, God. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, We're going to have them stuffed, don't worry. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, a yeah. great question. Are you going to pass it on? Yeah, <laughs> I think I've been stuffed. At it. Um, but um, I think there are many, many people who are... Who have got the <coughs> who've got the talent and the um, the ability and the politics and the judgment to make um, contemporary films? I mean, for, you know, far better than some because they're of this generation, and and would observe and make critiques of the way the world is very well. The the problem is is getting commissions. It's um, it's, it's being able to do a run of films where you can cut your teeth. I mean, we, we were lucky, hugely lucky, um, to be able to work in television when they respected the, the single piece of writing, where things didn't have to fill into a fitter format. Um, so you could direct um, films or plays, original work, make mistakes, and, and after you know, six or seven or eight, you might begin to have a sense of how you might do it. Um, but I think it's very difficult now. Um, I think directors aren't given that chance. There's a, there's a, a micro, everybody here will know this, there's a micromanagement going on so that directors are, are strung up at every turn about casting, about script, about editing, about how they're doing it. And if you're not allowed to go through that process of working out how to work from first principles that, you know, that are in your head, <coughs> You, you, it's very difficult to get there. It's very difficult to feel that you're, you're actually swimming on your own, you know, instead of being, being encumbered by all the producers, commissioning, whatever, executives, the whole panoply. So I think that, that, that's the problem. There's never any shortage of talent, and, the, and I meet all the time, Rebecca does, and we all do, brilliant people who are full of ideas. That, that's the problem. And so little, you know, everybody is so risk-averse in the commissioning departments, and everything is so sort of carefully locked down before you even get out the stocks. And it, I think that that's a real handicap. And then also, um, just from a sort of technical point of view, directors are given no time to prepare 
no time to research locations, and no time to cut, you know, a week or two weeks. Um, it's crazy. And I think just a bit more uh, chance, just a bit more risk-taking would make a huge difference. Paul and Ken, um, you work together uh, as writer and director, and uh, um, that is a relationship that's often fraught with eminent peril, as you know, and, and can be <laughs> contested and argumentative. And I'm sure you're not like that because you've been wedded together for so long. I just wonder how the process goes. Uh, does somebody write a draft and some, somebody come and talk about it, or do you sit in the room and write together ever, ever or uh, just just curious as to how, how the process goes. By the way, the, the film was absolutely in focus and totally balanced, like a really fine painting. It was really well structured, so obviously you're doing something right, so can you tell me how you did it? Um, well, most of the conversation is about football, really. I'm commiserating Ken about Bath City. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but then Glasgow Celtic's not much better, really. So after we get the football chat over and done with, um, it's a very organic process, really. I suppose one film has bled into another over the 20 years. And um, I suppose it's, well, like for this one here, it's, it's kind of, it's both a question of, of what's going on around about us, our contacts, also of the gut, you know, and then digging around, asking each other questions, sending each other um, cuttings. And, um, and every story has actually been very, very different, whether it's been, you know, in Bread and Roses in Los Angeles or the one in Nicaragua or Cantona, for example, looking for egg. They've all been different moments, but the process is, is roughly the same. It's trying to be our own toughest critics, but there's, there comes a point where you, can, you have to start, stop talking about it. And, um, and then you dig in, you listen to people, but you can't copy a screenplay off the street. It's listening and being informed, and the more information you have, gives you more choices. And then what we, try, what we try and do is just put something down on paper. You know, maybe a rough idea of who the characters are, the premise, the narrative, what are the main points about it. And then we really try to be very, very tough with that. And if we think that this is a kind of a good premise, um, I'll just go away and write the, the first draft. And I think it's important to leave space open to, you know, not everything's tied down at all, because you don't know what's going to happen in the writing process. Then I'll show Ken and, and Rebecca the, the first draft. And then we start the process again and try just to be our own toughest critics to say what works and what doesn't, or this is a cul-de-sac, or this is worth developing, and then gradually come to a final draft, which Rebecca then uses to um, raise the money with if we're, if we're lucky. <laughs> so that's very roughly, but it's, it's, it's just very organic and full of questions and talking. And I think, I think we're very, very lucky that Ken is a... He's a very, um, I hope you won't mind me saying this, he's a, he's, a very, um, he's a very tough collaborator, but also a very generous one because we're both doing different things and we kind of meet in the middle as filmmakers, I think. That's a relatively kind of closed system, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's what's great about it. It's kind of like a crucible, whereas so many other people will have other people coming in at some stage and interfering with it or whatever. I, I, think, I think that that's a good point you make, Francine. I mean, often mm. uh, people will um, come and say, will, will you read this script? Um, or, or will you see the cut of this film? And, and I'd much rather not. I say, no, y you have to judge it. Because get lots of different opinions in um, from people outside the central core of the idea. And you're going to get pulled in different ways. Mm. And that's really not, not helpful. And, and we, we tend not to show it to, to anyone, you know, unless they absolutely have to see it. Because 
Because you're trying to hang on to a, um, a, a core idea, you know, and, and sometimes when it's being formed in, your, in our heads, um, you, you, it's too frail to be exposed to the light. Um, and I think it's quite dangerous, the, the, the habit now of saying, will you read my script and give me a few words? Like, read this, read that. No, no, just keep it to yourself. Refine it in your head, you know, keep it to yourself because it's, it's private till you've, till you've got this sorted out, really. Um, yeah. And even during the first draft, even sometimes I won't, you know, and we might have talked about it before writing something, but in the process of writing, <coughs> I mean, you don't know what's going to happen, really. I mean, even the name Daniel Blake, that gives you something to kind of hang on to, or that little piece at the end, you don't know that's going to happen. So you kind of like to try and keep it as a surprise so that when Ken reads it, he's reading it in a winner and we haven't talked out everything. It's like, because you do, you, I think it's really important to follow your instinct and to be, leave space to be ambushed almost. Because if I think of a character has got life, it will take you in places that you'll never expect. And I think this is what, I mean, as I understand it, how they do films in America, that everything, they do a 200 page treatment, then they work back from that. So I think you can have maybe great kind of narrative force or, or steps, but there's no space to be, you know, we'd be surprised if everything has worked out beforehand. And I think it's good to have the, the space to be surprised, I think. Uh, thank you. I've never been so frustrated by something so brilliant, and you two have just broken me. Um, <laughs> question for Ken, though. Uh, did you cut this, this analogue uh, like you did Jimmy's Hall and before? Um, and how does that affect your decision-making? Yeah, well, how does it affect your decision-making as opposed to sort of the... You know, cutting on a final cut or an avid or something like that. Um, ah, a technical question here. <laughs> um, 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 I tried not. I, I did. For, sadly, um, we did cut on, on an avid this time, uh, which um, uh, was a pity, um, because um, I, I think it's very. I'm not, I find film is a very tactile medium, and of course, you lose that. Uh, you, you, you lose that. So. Um, the, the problem was, yeah, we could still get the Steenbecks, but the infrastructure is now very expensive. You know, printing all the sound rushes would be, have been very expensive. I and mean, I think it was going to be 150 grand, was it? Yeah, something like that. I mean, really sadly, um, you know, no theatres have really got the double head projection. Uh, it's, it's just the ancillary things all around it that make it really, really expensive. And because, I mean, we still, we have such a wonderful rhythm with cutting on film and mm -hmm. and it and, and it actually it's very frustrating because every time you get to a cut and you want to make a change you've got to reconform everything now if you were just doing it on film you can just mm -hmm. cut out that bit and put the new bit in and watch it and, and the other good thing is you've only got one version you know <laughs> yeah i mean we're, we're lucky because nobody asked to see it but um i know you know again the micromanagement people can just tap in and and, and see it while you're working um, and th there's there's a um, there's a rhythm to cutting on film, you know, and it builds up. At the end of the day, you see it. Well, we've done that today. Um, so it's um, there's something very um, pleasing about it. J Jonathan, I think we'll retire to a cottage in the Cotswolds and have <laughs> tourists come and watch us cut on film. <laughs> 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 we, we, we actually did we actually did consider doing the cutting of, of um, uh, I Daniel Blake. In a, in a museum behind glass <laughs> so that, that people could actually come and watch the process. Yeah. You could do a Beamish museum up in, in, yeah. in yeah, Newcastle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. 
I just want to say thank you for such a powerful film. Uh, me, myself, have been in that situation, and I can see the deterioration of a person. So I've got two questions. First of all, where did you get the actual inception of the, the idea, the theme of tackling unemployment? And second, how was the, the actual feeling on set? How was it tapping into those characters and trying to always be true to the actual character? Was it easy? Was it hard? Was it always difficult being such a, such a negative topic? Um, well, uh, you know, I mean, I'm a stand-up comedian, so, you know, th this film locked in me is all new. Um, and, and I always, I've said this before, and I remember on the first day, Ken saying, uh, because of the way Ken works with, you know, get a little bit of script each day, so you don't have this thing where you, you know, it, you, me and Haley couldn't go on, on page 27 and go, oh, look, this is a big scene coming up in the food bank. Um, the way Ken said to me was, basically what you need to do is just listen to each other and find the truth, and if you find that truth, then you'll get the emotion right. And so for me, it was a case of living Daniel's life every day, really. Um, you know, because as Ken said, there's no music in the film, so it's very, it has to be true, you know? And I think the same with, 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 with Hayley, the, the scenes we spoke to each other, it's about listening and, yeah. and just finding that moment and that truth just from playing the scene there and then, rather than have some preconceived idea that you've read the script a few days ago and you know what you have to play and I think that's what helped me and just going from day one right the way through living Dan's life and it was a surprise to me that some of the things that happened you know you know the food bank scene and you know nobody knew about that only Haley. you know so it, it, it's it's as if you live in the life really I mean that's how yeah. I found it I mean I think that although as actors we're not given the script as a whole because of the level of what Paul's done before he's written the script. He knows who these characters are, and they're very clear on the on the on the page. And so then, when they're given to Ken and the crew, they begin all. They they have a very solid idea of it. And I also think because of the truth of it, from what Paul's found in his research, you kind of trust it implicitly. I didn't. When a director doesn't give you the whole of the writer's script in one go, it's a massive display of trust, I think. And so if you're doing your job right, you have to reciprocate. It's a responsibility that you have. Um, you, have to, you have to trust them back. You have to trust their crew. Um, you, have to, you have to trust it in all of it. Um, I didn't ever find it hard to, you know, um, stay in character or reach the character or anything like that because it's so rooted in truth. Um, and it's also to do with Ken's process of how he leads you through it. Um, and also in terms of the, n the kind of negative content, what we, were, what we were blessed by as actors, we, and I've, I've talked about the crew quite a lot, and it's something that kind of post-film, a lot of people, f not forget, but I think that they're not spoken about, and I think it's quite unfair. Um, what Ken and Paul and Rebecca have done over the last however many years is they've managed to get together a group of people um, that make up their crew who are very, very skillful and are very generous in their skills and their talents that they have. And I'm talking from, from catering to, to Robbie who shot it, um, but also in their energy and their commitment to it. Um, had anyone not been as involved as we were, things could have gone wrong. You would have been tripped up. 
because it's so delicate. You know, the, people, the people's lives that you're displaying, they're so delicate and so fragile. And so if every member of the crew wasn't as invested as we are, something could have gone wrong. And so I think us five are kind of blessed with having a crew that were so committed and their energy and their focus was just completely invested. And also they're sworn to secrecy, so they never let on. So if no. you try and get anything out of them, like, <laughs> like what's going to happen here? They just go and walk yeah. away from you. Everybody just walks away and doesn't yeah. speak to you. Or, they, or you walk into the production office and people put bits of paper yeah, over yeah. things and just go, yeah. you know, so... You're not so, allowed so to that, know. Yeah, so. There's also a sense of humour. I think that's something that could easily be, be dismissed. There is a wonderful sense of humour. And that's something that you know about Ken from first meeting him. And it, goes, it runs right, right the way through, through the group of people. There's a, there's a sense of humour and you're not expected that when you, you finish a food bank scene or you, you, know, you finish a scene where you're wrapped in a blanket that you have to stay in that place. You know? I think it's nice also. I mean, you know, like I say, I haven't done a film before, so I, I, but, but just through, I, I would imagine, it, it, it never felt that I was on a film set because there's no costume or makeup to give you a little bit of you know, make up before you do a, a take. It's just basically the crew and the people who are in the scene. So you always, so in those times when I even forgot I was making a film, you know, if yeah. I hadn't looked over there and saw him stand in the corner, I wouldn't, you know, so it was, so, so, so you know, it was that sort of amazing feeling that when me and Kate were in the flat, we were just talking and that was an amazing feeling that you weren't really in a film, really, you know, and that's how I felt anyway, you know. <clears throat> I think I think what uh, the, the first question is uh, what is I mean is the important one is is what got us into it, um, and I think I think we we as Paul said we, we exchanged stories and Rebecca too about what was happening and the level of sanctions and the level of the assessments, and it was the realization that our governments and successive governments know that they're consciously making the health of its citizens worse. They know they are leading people to suicides. They know that they're destroying lives. And they're doing it consciously. And the hypocrisy of what is being said, and the hypocrisy of, you know, I, I, I'm, everyone is having a hard time. I really feel for you if you're having a hard time. The area is really suffering, really feel for you. The hypocrisy of that really is what wound us up. And we thought, you know, you, you, have to, you have to be accountable for this. Because, and how do we know? Well, on the, when people are assessed by the state, most of them will lose that assessment. But they'll, they'll, they'll lose, their, they'll, they'll be told they have to work. If they appeal, they will probably win that appeal. So the state is saying, yes, we'll put you through this, and yes, you, you may be in the right, you may be not fit for work, but we'll say you are. And if you've got the guts and the courage and the time and the effort and the strength, yes, okay, um, you'll, you'll win the appeal. And to treat people like that, as Paul said, is absolutely, well, it's beyond words. And so I think that... that, that, that and I think, can I just add one thing to that? I think it's very important too, because there was an interview done with Damien Greening um, in The Big Issue. And I actually spoke to the journalist who, he spoke to me first, then he was going to phone him up, so I read the interview. But their defence as well, there's 20, 22 million people at some point or another, you know, claiming benefits. And um, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a huge figure. And he says there's obviously going to be one or two mistakes. Now, you know, and it's, it's so dishonest, really, 
You know, especially, I mean, you think, well, it's very hard at the beginning to say, well, is this just dysfunctional bureaucracy? Or is there, or is there, or is there <coughs> a madness to it all? Or is there a, a logic to it all? And it's only by doing the research that you begin to find out what's going on. And again, the whistleblowers were very, very important to us because they were the ones who said, they, they say, for example, I mean, they've given um, information at select committees in the, in, the front, in the House of Commons saying we've got no targets. They might not have an X number, so they're being totally dishonest, but we were shown um, uh, photocopies of printouts of names of individuals alongside their workmates with how many sanctions they carried out each month. And then a covering letter from the managers saying only the top three had carried out enough sanctions. So it's systematic in coming from the top. And so many of them told us that the pressure from managers to just give people a hard time to reduce footfall, this is what they call it, footfall, was absolutely <coughs> massive. And if they didn't carry out enough sanctions, they weren't aggressive enough, they were put on something by the Orwellian name of PIP, Personal Improvement Plan. This is for the people inside the job centres. So the pressure that they were under, and so an awful lot of the older people especially, people who've been there maybe for 30 years, said it's just unbelievable the pressure. They get so tired of it, they get sick, and many of them are fallen by the wayside. And many of them were actually, were, quite a few of them were in the, were in the yeah. film, in the scene in the job centre. You know, so, um, so it is systematic, you know, and there is a logic to it, and so many people fall by the wayside and just give, just give up. And, um, and so, but that is planned and that's built into the system. Of course, the whole question that we looked at with Vivaldi and, and the phone calls. I mean, you talk to people just about the logic of getting through. It's just unbelievable. It just totally grinds to a halt. Letters missed, not knowing how long your mandatory reconsideration is. Even the language, again, just alienates people. So there's a whole logic to it. Just to say that, uh, that there are food banks in the fifth richest country in the world is an obscenity. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't even be in existence. Mm -hmm. And that is an incredibly visceral scene because all of us at some point or another has said, oh my God, I'm starving. We haven't a clue. And the moment of having to dig into that tin was so graphic and so painful. <coughs> Um, and I think you may have answered it, but it, it, the, the script, if there is a tight script, I'm not sure, this is my question really, how much is actually tightly scripted and you have to stick to, this is for the actors, mm -hmm. and right of course, Ken, um, and how much of it do you allow, if it takes over in the moment, how much do you allow um, the scene to play out with whatever comes out? Well, of well, the actor. Well, it's, it, like, like it's all scripted, you know? I mean, you know, we get, we get a couple of pages each day and we learn the script. I think, you know, it's a testament to how good a writer Paul is that, like, you know, I think, you know, if you're a script writer, you should never really be watching a film and think somebody's written those words. I think the, the writer should disappear and he should just be visible by his words. And I think Paul's done that uh, brilliantly in this, you know? And, and I think also, He's, I've done a couple of plays before, uh, stage plays, and some writers can be very protective about each word, you know? Paul, Paul's great because he lets you own, uh, own it, if you like, you know? You can, but it's all there, Paul's writing, um, and I think you just get space to, 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 to make it your own, really, you know? I mean, that food bank moment, um, which a lot of people have spoken about, and I think it's important to state, you know, conversations like this, 
That moment in particular happened to a woman. We don't know how many women it's happened to, but Paul met a woman that that happened to in, in Glasgow, was it Paul? Mm. And so it's, it's very specific. It's not gratuitous, you know? I mean, it is when you're watching it, it's like a smack in the face for a lot of people, I think. It was a smack in the face when I did it, I can tell you. <laughs> but um, it's important to say that it's very specific um, and, and, and happened to a woman, and it happened to a woman in front of her children. And it's such a loss of dignity. Um, but no, it's, you know, I, I followed exactly what was given to me um, that Paul wrote and that, and that Ken gave to me. Um, and what was wonderful, actually, it was really, it was, it was difficult that day. Um, there was a lot of people there and we were really trying to, I, I said the other day, I think that was the closest I felt to Ken because we kind of knew the secret, didn't we? And we were having to, we were leading people through it. But Paul was there on the day um, and just to sort of see him in the corner is, and know that you were delivering what he'd heard told from the, from the mouth of a woman who had experienced that was, was just that kind of, as I say, energy and support that sits around you as you do it. But I remember doing that scene, how it affected you, just being in the food bank. I remember mm. when we were, you know, the, the, um, the queue and that, First you were delicate. really, yeah. you, you, you know, it did, it really got to you, mm. you know? And the thing that shocked me about that scene as well was the thing when Katie's asking for sanity products and, and you know, for a woman to not She's again have, specific have that, you know, and when she does the, Shoplifting, she steals razors and, and sanitary products, which, which just for her own dignity, you know? And I think that was a brilliant piece in the film for me, you know, that sort of, um, I mean, you know, that must be one of the things. She didn't steal things for her kids. She, she bought those, but she, yeah. but she wanted to keep herself in deodorant, you know what I mean? Just simple things like that, which, which makes it even more heartbreaking. Well, really. there's, a, there's a sort of wholesale humiliation of people and I think people are afraid to talk out because they think that they're the only person suffering this. And I think that that's what's so painful. And I hadn't realized the scale of the sanctions and what they do to people. I really didn't realize that before we did the research of this film. And I'm ashamed that I didn't. And, I'm, I, and if, if the film does one thing, I hope it points out to people that, that they're not alone in the humiliation a lot of people are, are treated like this across the country, and, and I think that that's, that's what needs to change. Can, can I just add to that as well? Th thanks for your question. I think it's very interesting. But um, just because we've watched a film about <coughs> welfare just now, what was very, very interesting going to so many food banks uh, was that many of the people who were going were the working poor, people in zero-hour contracts. I don't know if you want to mention that story about Jack and Eaton, Ken. Um, uh, yeah, you know the young lad we first met right at the very beginning? Um, Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, the, the first day of uh, mm -hmm. research, we went, went to my hometown, Dunedin, and um, there was, um, mm -hmm. we, we went to see this lad, he was 19, and he was in a room that was provided by um, a homeless charity, and his housing benefit just paid for it. And he'd got a, he wasn't on other benefits because he couldn't face the humiliation. He was meant to be doing agency work, but the agency never phoned. Um, he had a, a fridge and a mattress on the floor was all he got. Um, we said, do, do you mind us asking you what, what's in the fridge? And he, he opened the door and there was nothing in the fridge. There was nothing, it was empty. Uh, and we said, when did you, did you ever go hungry? Uh, he said, um, yes. He said, uh, the week before he hadn't eaten for three days. This is a 19 year old lad. In, in an ordinary town, you know, mm. 
And um, he told the story of a, a friend of his who was, who was getting work from an agency. He was <coughs> called at five o'clock in the morning uh, to be at a warehouse, because it, it's, it's an intersection of motorways. So there's a lot of warehouses around, a lot of warehouse work. Be, be there at six o'clock. You'll get a day's work. He got there at six, told to wait. 6.15, the bloke came to him and said, well, what are you doing here? He said, I've come for a shift. He said, not today, pal, sorry, back home. No work, no, no pay for the day. You know, and that sort of daily humiliation. What, what self-respect, you know, a kid's going to have when they're doing that, really? And I think the, the other point I wanted to make, and because it might not come up, mm. is that there's a logic to it politically. <coughs> there's a logic to it, because... This, this is, the mass unemployment is, is a product of the economic system we've got, clearly. I mean, it's produced, it cannot be produced any other way. Um, it's a product of the system. There's five and a half million people in part-time work who are, who, who, who are not working, who are underemployed. And uh, most of those are, are getting some financial support because they can't live on it. Maybe getting one, two days work a week. Can't pay their, you know, can't pay rent. They're caught in that benefit sort of cycle of, yes, I get enough this week, okay, so you're off benefits, okay, I didn't get enough the week after to pay, so I'm entitled to benefits, but yeah, but it's going to take you three or four weeks before your benefits catch up. So they're constantly on the treadmill of poverty. Um, and it's, it's there to teach the poor that the poverty is their fault. And if they're unemployed, they're just not good enough. It's their fault. And how do they know that? Because they go on a workshop to write a CV. Okay, the CV is not good enough, you're punished. You're just not up to the mark. It's your fault. Haven't got a house, haven't got a home, you're inadequate. And that's the reason, because if they're not inadequate, if it's a real fault in the system, if you've got to change the system, they don't want that. So that, there is a logic to it. There's a logic. And you go back through history, Go back to the deserving and the undeserving poor, the sturdy beggars of Elizabethan England. They're all there. That's the constant thread through the history of, of the struggle against poverty is that there is a section of the poor that they're told your poverty is your own fault. And, and that's, that's an ideological commitment that our state has, has made. And, and that's, that's what we have to challenge because it gets to the root of why it happens. We've got a remarkable screening in, uh, in, Edin in Liverpool, just very briefly, because of that. And um, someone who, who is a, they obtained their PhD, um, they got their PhD, and they were forced to go on a CV workshop. She said, but I've you know, got a PhD, you know, but they still made her go through the process of having to plan her CV. You know, it's kind of pointless, but it was, again, it was to the humiliation of it. Mm. Well, we could, we could stay here all night and maybe come up with a few Somebody said out for pizzas, <laughs> we stay here all night. But thank you for your questions and most of all for your film. Okay. Thank, thank you, Francis. Thank you.